Never yield an advantage, Dennis. <laughs> fight only the battle you're paid to fight. Oh my God. Jordan, what's in the queue this week? It's amazing how physically exhausting it can be to do nothing. This week in the queue, 2023, American action thriller, The Killer. It's it's Fincher time, baby. It's Fincher time. We're doing it. We're here. I don't remember when this movie was announced. Um, I'm sure okay. we can find out. But I think at the time that it was announced, because yeah, it's 2023, you know, let's see, when did they start making this bad boy? Oh, they, they've been trying to make it since 2007, but principal photography began November 2021 in Paris, still kind of in the throes sure. of what we would call a pandemic. But I'm sure yep. at that time, the the sentence, uh, David new David Fincher film starring Michael Fassbender, written by Andrew Kevin Walker, titled The Killer, is in production, was like, probably the most exciting thing you could read on the internet in terms of like looking towards the future with with positivity oh yeah sure yeah there's hope yeah good things can happen again we're gonna get a david fincher hitman movie starring michael fassbender oh man and we got it we really got it (laughs) boy did we get it uh like a very by the book a film that is surprising in how unsurprising it is Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean yes like it's a movie about a hitman that loves doing murder and he's great at it. it and that's it and you're waiting he, for the turn well that's he, a really good point he and does, does he fuck up it? a great deal yeah i don't i think he likes it i think i think he i think he thinks he's good at it and i think yes. he wants he may, yeah. you to know that he thinks he's good at it but i think something we'll get into that yes. I, I i love this movie this is this i don't think this is the best movie of the year but it sure is making a case to be my favorite movie of the year um, yeah, it's, there's such a, there's such a fun relationship between what you're hearing and what you're seeing in a lot of different ways in this movie. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it, yeah, like Papa Fincher's having fun. He's having a good time. Papa Fincher. Big Daddy Finch yeah. is, 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 uh, is doing a lap around the track. There's a really interesting, uh, how did you put it? Interesting relationship between what you're seeing and what you're hearing. Um, this is like, it, it is a very... It is a movie exploring subjectivity. We are mm-hmm. grounded in the perspective of a nameless character that doesn't have a lot of character. And it's a very strange thing to try and make a movie that is this subjective, this grounded in one person's experience who we learn so little about. We, we learn about a philosophy that he holds that you kind of get within the first line or two, and yet he just spends the rest of the movie drilling home. Um, it's unclear if he actually believes this philosophy, but the philosophy is kind of what you'd expect from a hitman character. It's this nihilistic, forge no connections. Um, forbid empathy. You know, forbid empathy. I, I keep thinking thoughts in, in Michael Fassbender's voice um, after having watched this is this Is this the most the most least talkative performance where you still hear the actor... The like literally the entire movie. He has sure. the most lines, but he yeah, is not yeah, yeah. like his character is not speaking them. This this is a film that is like almost entirely in voiceover and other yeah. characters monologuing at the main character. The, you make a really really good point. We hear a lot from Michael Fassbender, but we don't see him talk very often. To the point that it like he almost starts to carry himself with like a weird sense of social anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like he has a kind of awkwardness when people talk to him that you're like, was that, it's so different than what we would normally get out of a hitman. This is, it feels like a guy who thinks the way movie hitmen think, but does not behave 
to the external world the way movie hitmen behave. Like he's a, yeah. he's a pretty awkward guy. He's a pretty awkward guy and again I think I think this will be something that we dig into because I think there's so, there's yeah. so much to say about it and it's so interesting. He it's not necessarily that he thinks he's a cool guy or he thinks that he's really great at it. It's he is presenting to you this idea of who he is supposed to be and sure. what Fincher is showing you is allowing you to question those things. Not just is this person who he hmm. thinks he is, but is this a good character? And not like morally good or good in terms of like uh, how their actions play out in the world, but like, is this a sure. cool guy? Like, is this somebody right. that if you watched another movie about this character, I don't know. I, I think Fincher's really poking a lot of fun at not just people who carry themselves through the world like this sure. a little bit. And I think there's a certain type of very online heavy individual and persona <laughs> that might really look at this guy in just the text of what's being said. If you were just sure. to read some of these lines or read this script, or maybe even you would know more about this, but go to the graphic novel. And I think Fincher's presenting this very much in the same way, very differently, much in the same way that he presents the Zodiac killer in the Zodiac to be completely unromantic, to be a little bit of a loser. He's kind of showing you this guy who thinks he's hot shit, but I don't think Fincher agrees. Yeah. As you were saying that, I was thinking about Fight Club. And I, I wonder, not infrequently, how David Fincher feels about the way that film was received. A film that was trying to do one thing and was received by a certain set of the audience in the dead-ass wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think about this character. And without, I, I don't want to get to the graphic novel yet. Okay. Because I, I think that that should come after maybe this, the spoiler break a little bit. But like, this is a character that like, I think the kind of person that would have gotten Fight Club really, really wrong would have read this character both in the film and the book and thought, what a, what a badass. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What a cool, cool guy. Um, and this film feels like it's going just a little bit further towards being like, he's not a cool, cool guy. This is a very, to be this kind of a person, to be the international hitman going all over the world killing people and making hundreds of thousands of dollars every time you do is not a cool job. The mechanics of it are incredibly tedious. It is mostly about packing and carrying a camping cup so you don't leave DNA evidence. It's mostly about knowing what motorcycle rental exists in each different city that you're in and keeping a bunch of different phones going. Like it's it's minutia. It's about it's nerves and anxiety. It's about watching over nerves your shoulder. It's, yeah. yeah. And to your point, I think, there's there's been such a fascinating uh, and even we talked about this a little bit like there's part like part these movies Fincher's movies and this movie in particular it, it's so well designed and I don't yeah. I have no like there's been a lot of reactions to it where it's like uh this is a minor work it's not his best it's not top tier I can maybe agree with that at the highest level of it but like to ignore some of the all the detail work that is in this movie is to like to not like movies. There's so much going on under yeah. the surface. There's so much in every scene. To to your point, what I wanted to add was, yeah. there's this been big reaction of, of people sort of like looking at little scenes from this movie or quotes and the reaction on the internet is very like, uh, he's me for real, for real. And I think, I think that's by design. <laughs> I think Fincher did that by design, but it's meant to make you feel icky and gross and uncomfortable yeah. every time he does something that is relatable to you. Every time he like, moves through the world or accesses something that is so everyday and so routine that you're like, oh, sure. I could see myself doing that. But 
the reasons he's doing it and the way that he is sort of interacting with those familiar parts of the world are, are all meant to squick you out. You're not, you're, you're supposed mm. to identify with him in the worst ways possible and then feel uncomfortable with it. And when you say that, <laughs> yeah, when you say that, is it about like, again, much like Fight Club, this is a, a movie that is very concerned with like the brands that we bump into all the time every single day. Yes. Like, the opening scene is a rear window set inside of an abandoned WeWork. Like this is a movie very concerned with like, how does the Postmates guy get into the building? How does the, like I said, the moped rental work? How much protein do you get out of a McMuffin? Like are, when you say that, are you thinking about those brands or is it something else? I'm thinking about that. I think that's a great point. Um, I, yeah, I, so I, I texted you, I think yesterday before we were talking about this and yeah. kind of not trying to get into it because we wanted to save it for yeah, recording, totally. talking about recording for it. And the moment where I, I think it was in the first 10 minutes, I said, I think what I texted you was, there's a moment in the first 10 minutes of this movie where I knew both that I was going to love this movie and that it was going to be the funniest movie of the year. And that moment sure. is when the door yeah, closes behind him to reveal the WeWork vinyl in the abandoned yes. office that he's staking out. I was yes. like, oh, yeah, I I already oh, love this movie and it's going to be We're hilarious. here for jokes. Um, I'm yes, thinking about that, totally. but I'm also thinking about like, yeah, I, I like that you bring up this sort of how, how Fincher's interested in this kind of like dirt, dirty, the sewer system of capitalism that allows someone like this to function, <laughs> um, which is something that I'm sure. also super fascinated by. I really like his look sure. at it and the way that he he takes it on where it's like, it does sort of still resemble the end of fight club but it also yeah. rejects it like well maybe everything did blow up in this world but it doesn't matter because it's still all of this is still happening it's still it still does it goes sure. on unabated right um sure but even just like again you you hear about you he has all these great voiceovers about stick to your plan anticipate don't improvise trust no one he has all these sort of like great chuck palina kind of like sound bites <laughs> about his process and his life and what he thinks about things um but yeah, Fincher has him doing all these really normal things in abnormal situations. We talked about it. Eating the gas station boiled eggs. As a boiled egg enthusiast, I don't like that. It's <laughs> practical, certainly, and I, I get it. So like, I'm like, oh, I don't in know. A bad I way. see myself in that. Or like the packing cubes for the guns, right? Like all these little yes. things where it's like, yeah, he's just a normal guy who's, who's using all of these normal things, interacting with the world just like you and I do, but he does it as a murderer. And, and you're yeah. supposed to see, you're not supposed to necessarily see yourself in that or see that in yourself, but you're supposed to feel a little bit, a little bit dirty by being able to understand how it is to be adjacent to it. Yeah. I think it's important that this movie dwells in that minutia because mm -hmm. there's a version of it that has like way more plot and cuts over a lot of that stuff to get to that plot about hitmen and how the money in that world works and betray that that's not the interesting part of any of this mm -hmm. the actual plot of what happens here which there's a hitman and i don't think this is spoiling anything but a job goes wrong and it sparks a series of ramifications that ripple throughout his world we'll get into it in, in greater depth after the spoiler theremin but like the plot is so bare bones simple because we don't have time for it no because what we're supposed to be here for is about exactly what moment before you go through customs, would you wash gunpowder off your arm so that the dog next to the guy doesn't smell it? Yeah. And would you go back 
and do it a second time just to make sure. Like it's, we're so concerned with the like the minutia and the process of being this international hitman character and avoiding getting caught. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which, as you brought up, isn't to say that he's the best at it. Part of the fun of this movie comes from the fact that like he he fucks up sometimes. And it's not like a quippy Marvel, did I do that kind of fuck up. It's just very like, this is really going to shit. I wasn't supposed to make that mistake. Okay, how do I get through this? I had this plan. It was a perfect plan. If I'd executed it right, I would have gotten to the outcome, but I didn't. And now I have to deal with the outcome. It's like, it is very much a movie about striving for perfectionism and how we can never really quite get to that point. And to a certain degree, the story only moves forward when he fucks up. Nothing happens in this movie until he, uh, and again, we'll get into this point. Nothing happens in this movie until he makes his first mistake. And then he only moves forward through a series of mistakes. Some of them are fortuitous. Some of them work out, but it's like nothing, nothing goes right. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Because there wouldn't be an entertaining movie if it was just about a hitman doing a really good job at being a hitman. No. Like this movie don't have a lot of that inciting. (laughs) We don't, because they don't work that well. Mm -hmm. Like it wouldn't, and I guess in a way this is okay. Do we spoiler Theremin? Do we just do we, we just we can. The one thing I was the, yeah. the one thing I was gonna say before that yeah. is yeah, we don't have a lot of these types of movies. And what's what I was really fascinated by is to me this is in conversation, like in a very tight kind of like mm-hmm. corner conversation with three other movies, which are Haywire, which is a Steven Soderbergh mm. movie, with yep. arguably almost the same plot. Uh, except with Gina Carano and also Michael Fassbender. Um, Then Anton Corbin's The American, which is close to this movie, but with George Clooney. Um, And also Gone Girl. This is a real, this is an interesting, when you go back to just Fincher, this is like, this would make an interesting diptych with with Gone Girl or an interesting double feature. Yeah, in the sense that like, it's about a sociopath that hatches a very calculated, carefully, meticulously planned scheme that doesn't go properly and they have to adapt. Uh, I would say she's better at it. <laughs> I would say she's more successful in, in some ways. Yeah, you might be right, actually. Hmm. Though, okay. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> you need like, a, sa- you need, like a soundboard with it so we can play for well, us as well. well. I've been... I've been putting a theremin sound underneath it, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm wondering if we need to. I'm wondering if just two people going. Mm-hmm. Well, then it's like a spoiler that ghost, and we've also like we have That's a true. complicated relationship with what's a ghost and what's a ghoul. With what's very, a ghost and what's a ghoul? Yeah, if you guys um, want to hear about that, you should listen to the the talk to the me talk episode. To the episode with um, the coldest cold open. I would, is this all in front of the cold open? Like, has the credit the credit music's played? Well, anyway, um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is we're 15 minutes in before the credits. Um, totally. I, I would love a, a, a the killer soundboard. I think that would be cool. Yeah, sure. Just a big rubber button that says 140 million human beings are born every year, give or take. My process not, is purely logistical, so- narrowly focused on design. I would love that for meetings, like for client meetings or like corporate meetings. It's like tell us you about know how, how you do Zoom. this. Boop. You know how in Zoom, when you do a thumbs up, it shows a thumbs up emoji? Mm -hmm. I want to be able to do a gesture that says, forbid empathy, empathy is weakness, weakness is vulnerability, wordlessly on the screen floating next to my head. Yeah, and then it's just, it's the the emoji is the the cutout of uh, like him in the bucket hat in the back of the cab (laughs) and his sunglasses. The costumes in this film 
are very iconic. And I think they're useful too. Yes. I think that putting a character in a bucket hat makes using their silhouette as a like cinematography trick much easier. Mm -hmm. Like there's something really powerful about that silhouette of him in that German tourist outfit. Um, also one of the funniest lines of the movie. I I was just about to say one of the funniest lines of the movie is my camo is based on a German tourist. I saw in London a while back. No one really wants to interact with a German tourist. Parisians avoid them like the rest of the world avoids street, street mimes. Yeah. Which is funny because it's also a bar, but Parisians. Yeah. It, he just, he it's like a anybody. funny movie. No, he doesn't like anybody. It's so, I mean, in terms of spoiling the plot, there's not really that much to the plot. No. Um, he fucks up a job, the opening job that we see him doing. The very first time we see him doing Hitmanning, he doesn't do a great job. He messes up. He kills someone else. He doesn't kill the subject. He goes on the run. He goes back to his like island. I think it's in the Dominican Republic. Like he goes back to his like beach home to find that his his love has been tortured um, by someone, presumably another hitman. And he goes on this rampage that takes him through his own network back to his own handler to the hitman and eventually the client. That's the arc of the film. Yes. Really simple. It's a hitman movie where he we really get to see him do one hit. It goes wrong, and all the hits we get to watch after that are kind of like personal time hits. They're like recreation hits. They're, rec- they're revenge. Yeah. Um, and it creates this really interesting tension because throughout the whole movie, we're getting this voiceover. And the recurring motif, I think throughout the film, but certainly in the trailer that I had to watch in the back of a taxi cab 17 times, no fooling, <laughs> uh, is forbid empathy. Empathy is weakness, and weakness is vulnerability. And the whole movie is about him spurred presumably by empathy for this person going on a revenge spree. And in doing so, he reveals like these vulnerability, these weaknesses, you could call it. The whole movie is a guy saying, don't give a shit. And the whole reason he's doing this is because he gives a shit. Yeah. Um, and I, you have to think the film is aware of that tension. Yeah, there's this very belabored in in that first uh, in the first. I mean, this scene, this movie is what really, if you break it down, like you said, six scenes, six setups, essentially, yeah. maybe maybe seven Beats. tops. There's if like you a have lot of interstitials, right? Like the planes yeah. and stuff in the hotel rooms. Yeah, in, in that first uh, sort of vignette, or it's 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 a collection of vignettes, little story vignettes. Yeah. In the first vignette. They're chapters. They there's that. literally yeah. a belabored reading in voiceover of the line, I don't give a fuck. Oh, and then, fuck. again, with what <laughs> continues on as a motif throughout the rest of the film, you see him giving a fuck. You, like, he, he, yep. Everything that yeah, he tells yeah, yeah, yeah. you is part of his process. Everything you, that he tells you is part of his creed. Everything sometimes that he tells you that he's doing is yeah. he's doing the complete opposite, right? Totally. Like, And I think we'll get to this in certain other places, but... There again, going back to like the the meticulous design of this movie, that voiceover and the imagery is is really beautifully matched up. It's almost so subtle that you don't notice it. And part of the advantage, and I think this is rare, but part of the advantage of this film being available on Netflix is you can kind of immediately go back sure. and and luxuriate in those yeah. details. Um, I intended to go see this in the theater, and then I didn't. Did you see it in the theater or did you watch it on Netflix? No, I didn't. I watched it on Netflix. I, I had gotten back from a vacation. I was sick as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just kind of like coming out of being sick and it dropped. And it was just like, I shouldn't be in public in a theater. Mm-hmm. And this is a dopamine hit. A new David Fincher movie, Michael Fassbender. Like, I need this uh, mental balm. 
So I watched it, then I watched it again. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't get to see it in theaters. Neither did I. I wish I wish it was staying in theaters longer because uh, I've watched it twice now. I will probably watch yeah. it a third time tonight. I like it a lot, but I would really definitely good. spend money to go see it in theaters, even after watching it on Netflix first. Like it's, I, I think, I don't think it would necessarily be a better experience, but I think it would be a different experience. Sure. So it's meticulous construction, which you bring up raises a really obvious question about this movie, which is David Fincher, a man known for, without even getting into the, like, maybe some, like, accusations of vaguely sociopathic behavior, a perfectionism. Sure. He is a craftsman, impeccable, detail-oriented process, make a plan, forbid empathy. Empathy is weakness, weakness is vulnerability. Like, how much of this do you think is... It's like the really obvious question. I think we just got to get get past it. Is this about David Fincher? Like, what do you think about that? I think it's not, and I think I I, no. I think that I'll go into a couple of reasons. That I think it's not. First of all, I don't think he thinks he fucks up this much. <laughs> Second of all, I think he is also someone because he's such a perfectionist, and also because he's like a funny guy. If you listen to him talk, sure. he's just a funny guy. He has like yeah. really funny directors' commentaries all the behind the scenes footage of him working, all his like Q and A footage. He's just a funny guy. And I think he is definitely aware of his reputation. I am sure that because he's a funny guy, he probably does things that given the benefit of the doubt, play into it a little bit. And I think this is one of those provocations where I think he thought it would be really entertaining to have people come up to him and be like, well, this movie's about you, right? And he can just be like, absolutely not. No. Um, More, more materially, um, I think I think I heard about this on another podcast, which I won't name okay. because this should be the only podcast you're listening to. But I think after a, I a screening or there was a and a after a screening of this movie somewhere in, in Hollywood, like one of the opening screenings, and somebody, yeah. I mean, materially asked him this question, but in a, in, a, oh, wow. in a slightly smarter way. And the question was essentially about, you know, autobiographical art, which is something that I sure. have a lot of opinions about. Um, sure. But... He said something that I think was like really, really beautifully put and very smart, and I think does also apply to this. I don't think he's the type of person that's interested in autobiographical art because, as he says, like when you make something, your interests, your perversions, your the things that you latch onto, they sure. come through in it. So, like, there is certainly something of him in this movie, in in possibly in this character. But I think so much of what we were talking about earlier, kind of before the before the break there, before the cut, in in how much this character is su- really written and, and presented so that they are not misunderstood in the way that, that I think Fight Club we, we know to be. I think ex- he presents it really specifically where like his interests and, and the things that he latches onto come through, but he's yeah. pretty explicitly saying nobody should be like this person. I think I agree with that. It's much easier to, it would be much harder to be confused about whether or not you should want to be this person than people were about Fight Club and some of those other stories mm-hmm. that he's done. Just because he's such a, like, I think stylish undersells what David Fincher is, but he's just a really stylish filmmaker. Like, he does commercials. Like, he, he's the mercenary. Like, mm-hmm. he, he, he has that ability, uh, and it can romanticize people that shouldn't be romanticized. And I think, yeah, I think a lot of this film is about trying to prevent that 
I think he. I, am, I think he's in on whatever the joke is supposed to be. I think I he's very, that. very aware of the meta text around. Yes. A person with his cultural myth making yes. this story. Yeah, the myth of David Fincher. Mm-hmm. I think that admitting, not admitting, but acknowledging that, like, when you tell a story, you, the things about it that interest you will naturally come out in the story. Is I'm like, oh, that almost feels like you're confirming what I'm saying. I don't think that you set out to make a movie about David Fincher and chose a movie about a hitman. But I think that when you set down to make this movie about a hitman as David Fincher, the things that you gravitated into are really Finchery shit. Yeah. Um, I, there's stuff. Yeah, go for it. No, I was gonna say, and I think that's why he that's why he makes such a big effort to and feels so comfortable in like really allowing the character to undercut himself at every turn, allowing yes. the character to like fuck up pretty often and make things worse. Really. <laughs> When he does, yeah. he fucks up so many times in this movie. He's so he's honestly like not that good at killing people. No, he gets it he's done. Like he, he gets it done, and he's like, it feels like he's so 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 meticulous, but he's still not meticulous enough. Which is a really interesting thing to say a person about a character like this, where it's like you need to be so detail oriented to get through this by the skin of your goddamn teeth. Mm-hmm. Like just barely getting through it. The the inciting incident when he he tries to take this sniper shot of his like s- target basically, and a, a dominatrix who is in the scene kind of like steps in front of it a little bit feels like a really like I don't really know how you prepare for that as a hitman in the way that he's prepared for every single eventuality throughout the rest of the film, but it feels like day number one is just make sure that no one steps in front of the bullet. You'd think. You'd, you'd think. You'd think that finding a way to make that not happen. Um, so the reason I brought that up is because I had read quite a while ago the graphic novel mm-hmm. uh, that this is based on. And I remember thinking this has that same really high potential. It's like all of the nihilism and pessimism that some viewers will naturally gravitate towards and think is really like, yes, my, the dark night of my soul writ large in on the screen in front of me. Um, that graphic novel suffers from some of those issues. The graphic novel is all monologue, all interior dialogue of this, this same character, but it is so much more about the, like there's a quote in the movie, 140 million human beings born every year. And he's talking about how the arithmetic of one hit man can't really skew that. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. nihilism and the pessimism that you get in those little moments that's like almost too much in the film, pages and pages and pages and pages of that in the graphic novel. Mm-hmm. The perfectionism and the like minutia and the detail oriented thing, that is fully made up for this movie. Oh, the carrying like is, yeah. I, well, and the it's carrying it, a camping cup to avoid leaving DNA. All those little details, the packing cubes for the gun, how you th- when you throw away the cell phone, and then how you drive a block further to throw away the other thing. All of that process, none of that shits in the book. Mm-hmm. It is way more concerned with how much money he makes and all of the crazy hits he's done over the years. It's way more aren't hitmen cool. And it felt like David Fincher read that, thought it was kind of silly, and found a way of subverting the whole thing by making this movie. Mm-hmm. The movie feels like a response to it, and it 
it makes it really hard for me to not see the perfectionist filmmaker in a text that wasn't concerned about perfectionism at all. Yeah, knowing that, knowing that does <laughs> does maybe change my perception of a little bit. But I still, I think because he has that, or he's yeah. he's kind of stated that like he he knows right. that it's like I, I don't know. It's it's you, sort of like I, I very much agree this. with this idea of like you know what it's if you made it, it's already about you. And I think like I think I've even yeah. said that before in our conversations. Like it it can, no, you can true. write it in outer space if you made it congratulations it's, it's already about you and not necessarily like writ large but like it's exactly what he's saying um your interests come through your viewpoints come through you cannot hide them uh and and make good art they come through in the truth of what you are communicating even if what you are communicating is so foreign and so alien and so far away from from the sure. feelings that it's grounded in like it's just there there is no escaping yeah it. um and i think it's interesting now that you say that it's it's very um that that whole aspect of the character is is invented. Um, I do think that's also a practical thing where he's like, okay, like yes. you know, he's just so interested in the how, the how of everything, right? Like, yes. yeah, I, oh man, that's so funny. It, yeah, it was. I was pretty shocked as I was going back through it the second time, having watched the movie, and I was like, this is. It's fully rewritten. Even moments in the text of the book that are clearly being mirrored in the movie. Mm-hmm. And the movie is really an adaptation of like the first three books in this much larger thing. But he it's fully rewritten. It it really abandons the premise of the book pretty early on. That's a book about a hitman. And the basic the basic idea that the person who betrayed him, again, we're on the far side of the spoiler theremin, was his handler. That's mm-hmm. pretty much it. Mm-hmm. That is really all it borrows yeah um well and to and to maybe further undercut my initial reading and back up sort of your point um again in that same panel there's been i've heard this on a couple of conversations now in that same panel i think andrew Andrew kevin walker the writer was there or he said this somewhere else where you know people were talking to him about the script and how great it is and how uh, the same thing uh, as you're mentioning it is truly an adapted story it takes the bones of it takes the reality of this character but adapts it and puts it into this very fincher world and every time he's been asked about it he's he's kind of said yeah uh, you know david sat me down and told me the story like told me the movie story and then i wrote it and at this other panel i think there were i think i believe the cinematographer was there a couple of his other like longtime collaborators who all worked on this movie and as people were were pointing things out or asking questions and sort of saying oh like this was a really fascinating moment or an amazing choice or how did you do this? It, like apparently in this Q and a people routinely went like that was David's idea. I just kind of like handed it off to him. Like actually that, thought of that well, you should ask him. So yeah, it is interesting how, oh, that's again, great. the reaction to this has been kind of like, Oh yeah. As much as we're sitting here being like Michael Fassbender, David Fincher, Hitman movie. Yes. Yeah. There is, there is a, a section of the reaction. that's like, okay, this is very slight. This is like not, this isn't sure. a magnum opus. And while that's true, there is, there seems to be a lot of authorial intent in it that I think maybe people aren't picking up or aren't open to. Like it's, it's good Fincher. <laughs> like it's, there, I, there's no such thing as bad, but this is, this is pretty good. Yeah. He, if the film is exploring what happens when a meticulous plan maker biffs it and i'm not saying mank is a critical biff or mindhunter was a commercial biff but like he does have things in his filmography that by certain metrics did not succeed do, did not do you think do this is about the making of alien 3 <laughs> 
I'm honestly coming around to your perspective. I mean, probably yes, but <laughs> I'm coming around to your perspective that like, I like the middle ground of like, if you made it, it's about you. I, that feels apt to me. I, I take that answer and I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. it's about you in that way because mm-hmm. you made it and you f- chose to focus on these, these elements as a way of processing the trauma of having made alien three. Um, let's dig in. Yeah. We're living in themes land here a little bit. I don't think we need to, I mean, we've already covered the plot. It's pretty simple, but like, let's talk about some, uh, some of the nitty gritty stuff here. The scenes, Michael the Fassbender, vignettes. Michael yeah, Fassbender. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Let's talk about some performances like Michael Fassbender. Um, what, what did he, he, he brings like a, I was reminded of a movie from a few years ago called shame. Love that. I don't movie. know if you ever saw that huge, huge, shame fantastic fan. movie. Big shame fan, honestly. It. Like it, it, Steve McQueen um, put him put him on the map for me in a really big way. Um, mm-hmm. But he he summons a like he's really sad in that movie, and that is a movie about addiction. But it also is a movie that really relies on his ability to be like constantly like you're never really sure if he's inviting you in or holding you back. Like you can never he he's really hard to get a beat on in that movie. There's and a I distance. felt like I was seeing that. There's a distance, and I felt like I was seeing that again in this movie, and I was really excited. Like, I like when he gets into that, tunes into that frequency. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it's an interesting performance. I It's the only performance in the movie that I don't know exactly how I feel about it, because mm. I think the voiceover is doing a lot, and that's that's a huge yep. part of it. Again, yep. we're talking about meticulously constructed. Um, but I think it's it's not... It's There's a certain... God, this is going to sound so silly on the face, but there's a certain like Looney Tunes physical performance quality to this because he doesn't have to do anything else. His movements are a little, his movements when he's by himself, and again, because this is so subjective, this is like a recounting of the story from his own perspective, but his movements when he's by himself and not really out in the world or interacting with someone, they're all very meticulous and kind of you know, very almost robotic and kind of cool. They're very practiced. Like you see this sense of routine within himself. But as you mentioned earlier, when he's just out in the world, he's a little squirrely. He's a little awkward. He is consistently deeply uncharismatic, which I think is a good trick for Michael Fassbender to pull. I think that's really cool. But he's just uncomfortable. You know, um, there's a bit of an interstitial between the early scene in Paris where where everything goes wrong. There's a really fun... uh, chase in that sequence where he's literally being chased by no one like mm-hmm. when he when he gets on that yeah. scooter because he's trying yeah, to yeah, escape yeah. after things have been botched there is some sense that one or two of the bodyguards or one or two of the security people yeah. kind of know where the shot came from and somebody runs in a direction there's police cars going everywhere but he's his escape on the scooter is shot like a chase scene but nobody is chasing him like it's such it's such good filmmaking sure. that again in, in like the details of it subverts like you think you're watching a chase scene, but the, there's no chase. No one's but chasing him. He's getting away. <laughs> no yeah, one knows it was framing him. him up. They keep framing him up any moment where there was a cop car somewhere off in the distance, mm-hmm. and it creates this. It does create this sense that the, the the cop car is coming for him, or at least well, it is looking for him, but it is not finding him. No, and he's able to go through that process of like, let me go find a dumpster to toss this thing away. Let me go find a, some grates and toss this thing into it. Um, yeah. but it feels like you're watching a chase scene. That's a good take. And it, it's, it kind of not devolves, but deescalates, as you said, back into that process. Like at the very end of it, you just see him tossing his backpack on, on, on a roll into a dumpster and then he's off to yeah. you know, scrub the gunpowder off himself, whatever. But 
Yeah, then yeah. he's out in public and he's just awkward and squirrely and it's weird. We have that great little interstitial when he's flying back to the Dominican Republic where he thinks he notices somebody following in the airport but um, and, and is so sort of put off by it that he changes his flight, right? Like, yeah. takes all these evasive maneuvers. This, this, it's not even a loose end. It's just like, no, that guy wasn't, wasn't going after that you. That was like, just a guy. That the, was just a dude. The way you see him when he's on the job as he's describing it, he is behaving and presenting himself one way but when we see him with other characters like you do start to question is this a guy who's actually confident in his skill set is he actually as good as he thinks he is right it's it's interesting i think this movie has a lot to say also about um if you're gonna if you're gonna say how good you are you better be able to back it up i don't think the film is as convinced as the character is that he is uh, the master assassin of all master assassins as he says at the beginning you know, there's the 1% and the 99%. At the beginning of the movie, he yeah. puts himself in the 1%. And then in the end of the yeah. movie, he identifies with the 99%. And it's it's an interesting bookend. Yeah, you make a really good point. Yeah, it there's there's a couple different moments where, like, there's moments when he's doing Hitman stuff where we're meant to feel like he's really, really good at it. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there's even there's a shot that's like a very phallic like he's like putting the silencer on the rifle and the way it's all framed up you're like oh my david yeah like yeah. this that's that's a great deal and then you juxtapose that against him like there's a scene during that the part you were talking about where he's fleeing essentially where he's sitting in a hotel room and it's the mechanism of like i get into the hotel room i order room service i take the metal heat trapping tray that the food came on with and i put it under the doorknob and i put the glass on top of the doorknob so that if it jiggles it'll fall and then i sleep sitting up in a chair with a knife next to me and you're like this is the most unromantic portrait of what it would be like to be a hitman and it's not dwelling in the grief it's not that he's he's so torn up about all the hits he's done it's just that like no a lot of the time it would just be sitting sleeping up in a chair because you have deep 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 anxiety based like you you have panic attacks trying to do this job like it is so unflattering yeah as uh, as he says way. in a slightly earlier portion of the film of the many lies told by the U.S. military-industrial complex, my favorite <laughs> is still that their claim that sleep deprivation didn't qualify as torture. Like, yeah, that was a good line. That's very uh, again. It's it's just so full of like really fight clubby dialogue. It's got it's yes. got not dialogue, sorry, but but you know, d- voiceover. This the scripting, the yeah, the the monologuing, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a good performance. Um, I think it's hard to see what a good performance is because he's doing so little. And I think just as he says, yes. it's incredible how, how exhausting can be to do nothing. It's probably really <laughs> hard to do this little. Yeah. There's a moment in the voiceover and you flagged it where he says, I don't give a fuck. And when it played that audio, I was reminded of the whole David Fincher mythos of like, he'll make you do a trajillion takes of something just to try and summon the right emotion out of you or just to realize the thing that he's saying in his head. Mm-hmm. And I noticed how when he transitions into saying, I don't give a fuck, there's like this really sharp distinction in the tone of his voice. He's been reading at a certain level and then he goes into that line and it, I suddenly felt like I was listening to a dude read a line for the 50th time, mm-hmm. chopped into a take into takes of a person reading the line for the fifth time. Yeah. Like his voice sounded tired when he said that. And I was like, Oh, is this it? Like, is that it? Is that a little moment of Fincher perfectionism of like, I made him say it 200 times creepier and creepier than the last each time. And this is where I landed. 
Um, something you bring up that I think can also move us move us through the plot a little bit is, yeah. uh, and you can speak to this much, much more from a technical and knowledge perspective than I can, but it's so deliberate that even I noticed it. The sound design in this movie is incredible. Like, oh. just first of all, yes. I mean, like just the way it's mixed, the, the, the voiceover, it just has a nice quality to it. But there's all these little yeah. subtle tricks that they do with the sound design. I mean, uh, when he visits the hospital in the Dominican Republic, you can hear mm. the generators. Incredible the generators. detail. A detail that is completely unnecessary but tells you so much about what's going on. So much. Um, yeah. yeah. One of the things that everyone, if yeah, you know anything yeah, yeah, about yeah. this movie, you know that it's full of, like, the music of the Smiths. And Fantastic. that, you know, the titular killer listens to you on an iPod Nano to, to get himself yeah, yeah, yeah. in the mood for like a little bit of murder, which is yeah, can't have really Spotify funny. Account. Just sure. really funny. That's awesome. Really, That's incredible. Really it's amazing detail. Um, but yeah. there's a scene kind of where, where he puts the headphones in as he puts yes. them in the, the, I think it's how soon is now just takes over the audio mix. Yeah. And then you cut out to like a wider shot and you can hear it in his headphones. And you're like, Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. It's, it's Fincher really, really looking at you and going like, you want to see me try you want you want to see yeah. me you want to see me sock a dinger to left field? Let's do it. Let's go. Oh, yeah. Like the, the the Smiths. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's the thing I noticed. The, the the generator is a good take, but the thing when you brought up sound design when we were texting about this, that it you you have to notice that is that this he uses that that idea of this is a guy listening to this music lying to us about what for because he says in the movie it's a nice distraction i'm like no you just love the melancholy rhythms of morrissey and it's also like, his work playlist on the ipod nano it's, it's his work, work playlist. playlist and it's all about murder it's fantastic it's like it's like it's like can't it's almost a campy thing to be like the hitman listens to the smiths and listen to these morrissey lyrics the entire fucking movie um it's fantastic but it that whole opening scene sets up this idea that like we're always either in these subjective shots of Fassbender or these objective shots of what he's seeing. Yeah. Or I guess it'd be the subjective shots of what he's seeing. And what he's seeing is in that opening scene is he's looking out a window with this person he's about to kill. But as we're flittering back and forth between those two things, um, we're going from hearing the music live mixed. I'm sure it's like a 6.1 surround sound mix, really, really high fidelity to teeny and small every time we cut outside of him. And, What's fun is that because what he's doing is pointing a sniper at someone, we're watching a man alone in a room, and then we're cutting into these long, weird sniper barrel shots of some wealthy person in a hotel room with Morrissey just blasting over the sound system as the viewer. We're cutting back and forth, back and forth, yeah. back and forth, and the cuts get tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter, building suspense through this thing he cooked up until the moment it crescendos, the bullet goes wrong, and the whole movie really starts. It's awesome. It is like sound design is both an editing and a storytelling tool. I no notes. Yeah. That part was great. It's it was yeah, after after the reveal of the WeWork office, it was Yeah. I, I knew I was gonna like it when that happened. But yeah. then after that scene, as you said, when the movie really kicks off, it was like, oh no, this is this this is really, really well considered and well put together. Yeah, we're cooking. Um, I also love yeah, that he listens totally. to Girlfriend in a Coma when he when he visits his girlfriend in the hospital. <laughs> I think that's a fun. A coma. I think that's nice. Yeah, it's kind of the uh, across the universe of the Smiths, isn't it? This like movie strung together of plot points oh, from from the discography. We've talked, Jordan. We've talked about giving away million dollar <laughs> ideas on the pod. Like, what are you doing? Got to cut this out. What are you doing, Gary? Yeah. Um, so yeah, he he fucks up this job. 
he, he bounces around a little bit trying to ditch someone who isn't actually chasing him, goes back to the Dominican Republic, finds out his girlfriend's been attacked, and he starts working his way back up the chain mm-hmm. to kill everybody who has resulted in it. Um, an interesting thing in this movie is that that takes him, I think, first through uh, essentially like a taxi driver who had dropped the hitman off at his house. Yes. And we really start to get the sense the that this is a guy who... Yes, the counter assassin. Oh my God, speaking of million dollar ideas. Okay. (laughs) That this is a guy who like will kill the taxi driver, but not because he's like, I just love doing killing, but because he's like, no, the taxi driver's in my face. And in order to do this properly, I have to kill everyone and leave no trace. So that's why I killed the taxi driver. I don't want to keep bringing it up, but the graphic novel has this like, sub recurring motif that is nowhere in this film, which is that the character in the graphic novel is slipping and becoming more and more involuntarily violent. And we learn from his backstory that the thing that got him into killing people was just that he beat someone up in a violent, like rage one time. There's this whole idea in that book that he is a naturally violent person. And this movie seems to be going to great lengths to set up the idea that he is pragmatically violent He's ultra-violent, but only when it serves a very specific purpose. Then he does it impartially and coldly. Like, very rarely do I feel like he's losing his temper, except, I guess, in the overarching narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was I was really shocked by that when I was going through through the book. But anyway. That's an interesting... Yeah, he kills, yeah, yeah. kills the taxi driver. Yeah, and again, going back to show versus tell, or in this movie, the combination of show and tell yeah. and what those things mean in a given moment... Um, this is, I think this is the first moment where you see sort of the scope and graphic nature and quickness of his violence. As you say, it's presented as something pragmatic, but there was something, um, I'm going to try to find the exact quote here, but um, there's something in the voiceover while he's in the taxi cab that really stuck with me and i think you start to mm. see this from this moment in the movie he's he's doing a lot of justification in the voiceover he's doing a lot of of justification of his actions right. either to himself or to the audience i think to himself i think what he says you know right before he pulls his gun out is this is your fault and then he says the guy's name like he is oh, he's i forgot that justifying to himself not just from a pragmatic sure. standpoint but i think a little bit of more of an emotional standpoint why this has to be done why he has to do it this way interesting yeah yeah the moral prognostication of a hitman that's interesting it's it's the first moment you realize you're going to be watching a thing like the first target who doesn't actually kill the like rich guy with the dominatrix in the hotel room like you get the sense this is just rich people killing each other um this taxi driver is the first time we're like oh they, they cast a like really likable kind of guy who's just like you're like ah, oh, there's no way he's gonna kill him this is the save the cat moment we're gonna get to see him make the choice not to, oh crap he just killed him Ugh, after that justification Ugh, icky mm-hmm. like it's the first moment you realize like you, we're not this isn't the hitman with a heart of gold this no. is what you would have to be to beat this kind of hitman and it's it's um, it's not a very it's not a very graphic scene but it's very quick no. and like the the blood splatter yeah. on the windshield it is violent it's jarring it's and hard. it yeah it really does set up like no this is who this guy is like there's no we're not yeah. we're not in the business of redeeming this person we're in the business of showing you what he's gonna do yeah it's now that we've seen the one fuck up get ready to watch him not like he fucks up, but it's like he he is going to kill them all. Yeah. 
um, takes him back to his handler's office. It's your boy. Charles Parnell. It's your boy. A man. Charles Parnell. Love this guy. I, he's having. We're here for the, it. Oh, Charles what Parnell. Is, oh. What a year. What a year he's Parnell having. season. Incredible. Ugh. The Mandalorian. I'm, Top Gun Maverick. This. Mm. Five other things that I'm forgetting about. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Like, Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, he's so good that. in that. He's always he's incredible for like, he's, he's the ultimate seven minute man. Like he gives you <laughs> an incredible set of scenes and this is no sure. different. I would argue this, this might be the funniest scene in the movie. Um, the scene yeah. in the office where he goes to the handler, uh, his handler's yeah. name is the lawyer. Uh, and we see that his name is Hodges. Um, Hodges. this is the funniest scene in the movie, but I love all the process stuff beforehand. Um, here we see, you know, he's yeah. got this incredible storage locker. He rents this big white cube van, One of goes six. through all this progress, talks a lot about how many storage lockers there are in, in the continent of the United, United States, States and how he owns yeah, eight yeah, of them. Yeah. Um, I think he has a great line about, you know, I, I would love to see the episode of Storage Wars after after essentially it. the payments dry up on one of these and people discover this as he's flipping through passports and and guns and license plates and everything. Um, the movie does the smart thing of being quiet for about 30 seconds after that line, if I remember right, because it knows it's like you're picturing it, aren't yes, you? Yes, yes. Like and you're imagining and you are. the person you're just that got the like, locker too. That's me. Um, God, yeah, with all the passports I, and the foreign currency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I love, <laughs> I love what happens in between these two scenes where you see him waiting outside a Home Depot as he has people go in and essentially buy him like a giant trash can, a nail yeah. gun, I think coveralls. Like he, he's getting all of this kit, all of this gear with with just the the bare minimum of untraceability to it, or like an air gap between it actually being purchased by him because he's going to set himself up as a as essentially it looks like a sanitation worker to try and gain access to the lawyer's office. Um, and even how he does that, just, I think he's waiting for like a FedEx delivery guy or something like there's all yeah, these like beautiful little details where going back to what you're saying, you know, it's, if you made it, it's about you. You get the sense that Fincher really Process. luxuriated in the like, well, how, how would, not just how would I do this, but how would somebody do this? And what yeah. do I find interesting about how someone would do this? Like, yeah. Where are the little flaws and errors in a system? Where are the little flaws and errors in human nature that allow a person like this to slip through the cracks and do what they have to do? And I think he really enjoys showing you that. He enjoys showing you the little details of how this might work. This feels almost... Everything is everyone's James Bond. Mm -hmm. But in a very real way, like I'm reminded of the beginning Casino Royale where... We basically, we first meet Mr. Bond after that opening little murder vignette in that movie, and a light turns on, and he's just sitting in a shadowy chair. Mm -hmm. He's having a conversation with someone. And this feels like David Fincher's version of it, where it's just like, no, but specifically, how would he use the Postmates delivery guy to get into the parkade to get up to the place, and how would he get the door open? Like, he's so concerned with the minutiae of how you do hitman shit yeah. so much more than the actual hitman part of it, which happens very, very quickly uh, as it does in this scene where we get one of the funniest, harshest visuals in the film, which is Michael Fassbender unloading three nails from a nail gun right into Charles Parnell's chest. Yeah. Um, and the second and another good data point in your, he's a not very good hitman thing, which is so goddamn funny. He says this idea of like a man his age with three 
nails in his chest should should live about six minutes. And right as he says six minutes, we just hear this like croaking noise as Charles Purnell's character expires. Yeah, I, he just <sighs> in the IMDb quotes page, you know, the, the line is the killer. I need that information, Edward. And you are running out of time. The lawyer gasping. Fuck you. <laughs> and it's like the funniest. Fuck you. It's so belabored. It's so gasping. And then, yeah, he goes, uh, yeah. three nine-gauge nails, early middle age, non-smoker, about 180 pounds. Should last six, seven minutes. Then you cut to Hodges dying, and you just hear yeah. him go, shit. Like, it's, and it's, the, it's just the funniest line reading. That's it's comedy. so funny. Oh, that was really, really good. It, yeah. Um, this is also what this scene kind of shows us is what we're going to get for pretty much the rest of the movie, which is every time he makes an entrance into a scene – it is the other character monologuing at him. The other character mm. not necessarily revealing anything, but like sure. really spending time talking at him. You get a little bit of, of the killer in voiceover in these scenes, kind of doing a little bit of meta commentary on what he's hearing or framing something for you. Again, getting that subjective presentation, but he is yeah, sure. almost silent in all of these silent. confrontation scenes. Yeah, it was, I was, I was intrigued by that that inter like the interaction between him and his lawyer, because his lawyer chastises him for having gone home. Mm-hmm. You remember that part? And I was I was confused because like he doesn't get in trouble for going home. Like the hitman went to his house when he wasn't there, presumably tortured his girlfriend while he wasn't there, and it's only because he then went home after that he discovered all this. But he didn't get in trouble for going home. It was like I, I was. It's a little bit confused by that that beat in the moment. This isn't like critical feedback. I'm just like, oh, I, I didn't get that. Did you? Uh, I think I think the implication was sort of um, because they do have that. There is a conversation. The, the lawyer Hodges is introduced a little bit earlier in the film in in the Parisian section where they have a cell phone conversation where the setup is sort of like, you know, the killer wants to leave. The target hasn't shown up. He's been here for I think seven, eight, nine days. He says, I'll give it yeah. one more day until he shows up. And, you know, they kind of have a conversation about, well, look, you know, if, if you don't deliver, we don't invoice. The, there's a little bit of a setup that there are procedural consequences to a job not going well. Like any contract, like as, yeah, as sure. we know, we've been involved in this. There, there are, there are um, not in Pauses. what we do, not necessarily consequences quite like this. But, yeah, there are contingencies no. and things happen when projects aren't delivered. Yeah. It, Costs get deferred. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and. The sort of the the delivery as Charles Parnell is saying is you saying you know why did you go home you shouldn't have gone home. What's implied to me in that scene, or I think what I got out of that scene, is that this idea of like well, you know, and, and I think he even says you know I didn't I didn't know you had someone there, so on and so forth. This idea of like well, it's expected. The job was a fuck up. I had to send them to to burn your place down or, or rough you up in theory. Right. I just thought it would be procedural and you wouldn't be there and everybody would go off kind of laughing in the sunset. You know, they show up, they wait a little bit, they. They rough up your place a bit, but because you didn't go home, no harm, no foul. Everybody, this is we. This is just a thing that's done, and we'll get there when we get there. But this is also kind of played out in the last scene with the client, where he even kind yeah. of says, "Like I, I didn't know. I just I asked, you know, what's usually done in this situation, and I thought it was under control. I didn't think that like, there's so a very there's something very business like or very um very established about like well, this is just what happens, right?" Yes, uh, I think you're right. I, I had viewed it as like the reason this all went sideways and they tortured her was because you were there. It didn't make sense, but I see what you're saying, which is the idea that like not only should there not have been a girl there, 
but you never should have gone back. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be here right now. You should be in the fucking wind with your millions of dollars. Um, Okay. I will. This is, this is jumping ahead. There is a scene. Did you notice the number on his like ATM slip later in the movie? It's not that much money. It's like eight, he has like 8 million bucks, which is 8 million bucks more than I have. Certainly. Yeah, sure. But you'd imagine like also like, what are his expenses like? Like I have a lot of questions, (laughs) both legit, like, this is what I want to ask Fincher about. Like, how did you come up with the $8 million number? Because that's not there by accident. <laughs> so in the book, it's $200,000 a job. Okay. We get an explicit answer to this. So you can actually, <laughs> where's, where's my calculator? Like you could, you could crunch out the math of how many of yeah. these, these he's done. What, what I do love uh, about this is that it doesn't have the framing of like, it's one last job. It has none of this. It's like, no, he's just, no, he's just it's working. None of that. Eight, eight million <laughs> divided by 200. 40 he did 40 murders at a two hundred thousand dollar book that's a lot of murder a lot of murder and then like okay so is that his cut like like does that include rentals like what like you know (laughs) yeah are expenses included like how many revisions are part of this are part of this we'd have to round it up to to 50 kills with margins and revisions unlimited revisions like yeah is the client paying for bullets like, does he get a per yeah, diem yeah, yeah. for those egg McMuffins? Like, what? The, the WeWork office, where, where did they get that? Right, right, yeah, right, right. I think someone literally says the phrase, we'll have to swallow the expenses to date. And I was like, yeah. I was not expecting to hear that line in a movie about a murder. Um, um, this, so yeah, so, uh, you know, Hodges, Hodges dies or <laughs> is killed by the killer in a slightly more expedient manner than expected, which leads to... Um, arguably the most emotionally interesting portion of the film because the other person that's present in in this sequence is hodge's secretary whose name is dolores the only character in this movie with a proper name yeah it's rough because you or sorry again excuse me magdala the killer's girlfriend also has a name but she gets a name. One of one of two that's characters good. in this movie with a proper name. Uh, the the billionaire at the end gets a name. Yes, that's true. Okay, yeah, because because there's newspaper articles about him. A, a lifetime of watching movies would tell me that when we then, yes, he's bad. He killed the taxi driver, but then when he gets to the bad guy, their nice secretary, who's very nice and is taking pills to calm down, which boy do I feel seen in that moment. <laughs> um, like again, a lifetime of watching movies. I'm like, he, but he's not going to kill her. And we get this really interesting interaction where she she asks him as she's shackled to a, a sink, which she did to herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know what you're here to do, but don't. I can't remember how she articulates it, but it's like, but don't. She's like, a, she says, I can't disappear. Like, I can't disappear. I have so my, my I, I can't do it for my kids. Happened. Also, my family yes. needs the insurance money. I can't disappear. And And yeah, there's this whole setup, as you're saying, of like, you think this is going to be his one moral moment. And and again, what we have already kind of been taught by the film is he's going to do something yeah. opposite of what he's saying. As she's saying this, he's, he's saying in the voiceover, forbid empathy. Um, you know, he does the next best thing, uh, mm-hmm. which is he makes her death look like an accident after taking her to she her house disappear. where the actual records are kept and she shows him yeah. shows him the path of the client and of the other contractors. He, he essentially does the next best thing. Um, and this was a moment in the movie that I, why, why I say that this vignette was like kind of the most emotionally interesting. I don't know what to do with it. Everything else in the movie, I have like a really good read on and I don't, 
I don't know how I feel about this part. Not in, in terms of quality or narrative or story. It was just a really interesting choice. It's, this is like one of the few yeah. scenes that I think could have gone a lot of different ways and mm-hmm. is, is very intentional in how it actually does go. It's like the closest you get to a redeeming quality for him. This is like, he has some level of respect for Dolores where like, as much as we are, we know by this point that he is going to have to kill her. He sort of like d- does her a kindness by, by making it look like an accident. It's, it's such a strange, totally. strange emotional beat in a movie that where the other, otherwise the pretense is that it's completely unemotional and completely cold and unfeeling by design. Yeah. It's, it's the only way they could show a moment of empathy from a, killer whose mantra is about not showing empathy it's Mm -hmm. like you can't show empathy by him not killing her but i guess you could show empathy by him killing her in a way that technically meets her requirements yeah like it's such a it's like why that it's the thinnest of silver linings that he snaps her neck at the top of the stairs and throws her down them so that it looks like she just took a tumble and honestly like like a really smooth move like very practiced and so quick too the same way it was so fast when he killed the taxi driver, it was so fast when he just thumped those three nails into Charles Parnell's chest. It happens so quickly, and we move on so rapidly after he throws her down the stairs, basically. We also um, are told at some point in the movie that, that I don't know if it's his specialty, but he is apparently quite skillful at, at those sort of accidental-looking deaths, which is really interesting. Yes, it's interesting that he has like a poisonings. Um, yeah, But yeah, it's, such, it's a, a fun good subversion, drowning. because it's like every time you think you know exactly what's going to happen, there's just this little yes. undercut. And as you said, it's so quick, it's so easy, it's so practiced. Even when it's a fuck up, it's, it kind of works out, which leads us into the next scene, which again subverts this entire, the last thing you've been shown, which is, you know what? He's, you've been shown and told that he is this, this really skilled killer. Even when he makes a mistake, he figures it out. Um, and the next scene where he tracks the beast, oh, uh, sort of the heavy, the enforcer that, that is implied, yeah. you know, really did some harm to, to his girlfriend, to New Orleans, Again, it doesn't it doesn't go exactly how you think it's going to go. Um, yeah. One of the best fight Florida scenes I've is, seen it, in a long was, time. It was Florida. This was this was the portion where I was like, oh, this is really in conversation with Haywire because it's so similar mm. to another fight scene with Michael Fassbender in it, the the hotel room fight mm. scene in Haywire, and somehow this is better. It's more dynamic. There's, I I don't know exactly what this move is called, but did you clock the? Fincher is so practiced and so intentional with his camera that here he's doing something that I don't know that I've never seen it before. I don't know that it's never mm. been done before, but I can never, rem- I, I can't recall it being executed and done this well. Every single hit is punctuated by a camera shake. It's not shaky cam. It's not the born identity. You see everything no, that's happening. Everything is perfectly exactly shown to you and framed. The scene must have cost so much money to film because everything is fucked up and broken, but there is like, the, the camera is feeling each impact. And it's not just a shake either. Yeah. It's this thing, and I've seen, a, I've seen it before, and I don't think I saw, it was in John Wick, though I'm sure it happens once or twice in there. Mm-hmm. It's this thing where the momentum of a character, that, like say we're pointing, we're standing still watching something happen, a character's momentum, and it can be their body, it can be their fist, can like grab the camera and move it with the momentum. Yeah. So he gets picked up, the camera still. He starts getting heaved towards the the wall. It's still standing still. But the moment before he hits the wall, 
the camera like locks onto him and thumps into the wall with him and bounces off with him. And then it gets stable again as he tumbles. But it gives this sense of like velocity to the punches. Yes. The other thing to the sound design question we were talking about, sound design and fights, we're all really familiar with it. It's whooshy. It's like blocks of wood smashing and like shattering to create like bone crack. This movie is all about like, this fight scene, I guess, specifically, the sound design is all about these really low bassy rumbles. Mm -hmm. Every time someone gets hit, you get this like low whoosh that comes in. And it's like, it's so effective. I think it's going to get imitated like crazy. It's one of those things that a sound designer will like pick up on. Um, and I think it's going to make its way into other movies because it almost feels like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross crossed from sound design into, I mean, cr crossed from music into sound design during that scene. And we're adding a little bit of synth texture to stuff. Mm -hmm. It felt mm -hmm. really Trent Reznor to me. I, I, I mean this with love and respect for the scene because I think it is really, really good. Yeah. You're going to be seeing shittier and shittier versions of yes. this scene for the next 10 years. Oh, yeah. Like, this, oh, yeah. Is, this is going to be, and like you said, this effect has happened before. I think, like, yeah, what you notice is, like, as soon as somebody is moving and their body hits the edge of the frame, the frame moves, mm -hmm. right? Like exactly it's what i like I, I always like to talk about like so letting an object bounce around in the frame and this doesn't do it, it like it pulls the frame like you said with with yeah. the most violent movement in the scene it's so um it's great there's another fuck up here he has to not poison but drug a dog clearly doesn't get the <laughs> doesn't get the dosages right he doesn't get the dose right the dog comes out yeah. of it's so good document this great. has there is also like a really and again this goes back to like it's yeah. so funny to to hear people talk about like Fincher is this like cold, unfeeling, unemotional robotic filmmaker oh, he's so in person. Emotional. He's the funniest guy on earth. Um, he's so there's a emotional. scene where, where the, like, the beast discovers that that Fassbender's in his house and he's in the kitchen and Fassbender, sorry, excuse me, the, the killer is hiding behind the, the kitchen island and he kind of like really gingerly opens up a drawer and he goes <sighs> so in and he's funny. trying to reach for a knife and what he pulls out is like a hand plane. Like a yeah, cheese, like a cheese, like a che like, but like not, a like, not a full cheese grater, like the one with the handle on it that you just kind of yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. the tiniest one. And the, yeah. like, this is where it becomes, this is one of the scenes where like the Looney Tunes nature of just this physical performance. Oh, we're having fun here. The look on his face when he looks at what's in his hand and notices that it's a cheese grater is just like this wilting, like, fuck me. Like, womp, I, womp. I, yeah, bump, bump, ba -da. like, it's just like, it's, it's before what's he, the, it's the, like, what's the womp, womp? What's the instrument that makes it? Yeah, like trumpets? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Before he impales a man's rectum on a chair leg, mm -hmm. like only Fincher, yeah, only Fincher would do a sight gag with a cheese grater before, like the harshest. And again, with the Trent Reznor, I think sound design, he like boots the guy onto this table and it impales him, and you get this like grating synth tone that just fires of like, yeah, what you think just happened happened. Yeah, there is literally a stick up this man's ass now. Like it just like. I don't know. I have a tough disposition when it comes to movies. That one got a wince out of me. Yeah. That was gnarly. Uh, the killer does get his ass kicked in this scene. Like it has to be, he gets absolutely beat the shit out of. Um, oh, yeah. Manages to escape in a clever way using some yep. doors and shooting through them. But I mean, yeah, this is like, as far as set pieces go, this is, this is top notch stuff. It's, it's I worth, it's worth watching this movie, but it's worth watching this movie to see this scene. I don't want to skim over the way he ends it yes. because there was something really wonderful about like the, the, 
the trope in movies of there's a character and they're standing on the far side of the door and they're pointing their gun at the door and the character on the other side of the door is coming towards them and they're talking and they get this it's the screenwriter trick of you get this beat of dialogue before the door throws open and we get like a like an old western standoff and just the like reality of the situation of if the guy is talking, he's approaching the door, which means if I shoot at the door, I will shoot him. Like yeah. he, Michael Fassbender just ends the scene early for like the fourth time in the film. He's just like, no, I know he's there and he shoots and it's done. Yes. And it's like, God damn it. That's, that's such a good, that rhythmic idea of all the buildup. And then you cut it short by Michael Fassbender, just taking the shot. That felt like something that felt like a, a seed idea mm-hmm. of like, this is going to be this movie. And he, each of these scenes is going to end with him killing the person a little bit earlier than you would think because he's a hitman and he knows when to do that. Yes. And it, it drives home, you know, it drives home something that I think is truthful. This character tries to tell us, which is, you know, it's, it's not the why the, the, there is, you know, we, we hear a lot of explanations in this scene before this with, with Charles Barnell, the lawyer, and he's just completely uninterested in any of the justification, any of the reasoning, all he's totally. there for is the name, and when 100%. he gets to the name, all he's there for is the kill. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, I'm here for here yeah for work. Ends up burning the house down. Um, <laughs> yeah, be just, walking away all sad and kind of like yeah, kind of busted up. This is what it takes, which takes us to the last like kind of two beats. The second, like the trailer moment. Oh, sorry, I, I want to say again. Oh yeah, sorry. He opens. I think he opens. He tries to open and close each vignette with like a really funny line. And I think when he gets to, is it? Yeah, I think he gets to New Orleans. Uh, let me look this up here. So the last scene took place in Florida. Um, uh, yeah, at some point he says, "Ah, New Orleans, lovely, humid New Orleans. A thousand yeah. restaurants, one menu. One menu, such a good line. It's unbelievable. Such maybe maybe that's line. from an. It sounds like that's from an earlier scene, but I, for some reason I connected with that part. Yeah. But it's just so funny. That's Hodges. It's just it's it's, it's, it's a funny movie. And again, coming from a guy who who eats McDonald's, like what does he know? <laughs> it's the idle, idle hours that most often lead a man to ruin. It's not Dylan Thomas, but it ought to be. Yeah. So our final our final hit actually takes us to Beacon, New York. Um, looks like a lovely town. Yeah. I don't know much about it, but I, I was noticing that in the second watch, uh, we're from the prairies, and it was just this like nice, you know, little brick. Brick, brick town with the with the, the snow coming down and it reminded me of home yeah um travels to beacon new york where he has this like very different interaction than he's had with the rest of the you know his targets basically much less about watching him stalk someone and go through the mechanics of finding them he walks up to a restaurant walks into the restaurant and sits down opposite tilda swinton a fellow assassin and has this like it's not really a conversation, but again, to your point from earlier, let's just watch Tilda cook. Yeah. She just monologues at him for seven minutes. This, like, a really wonderful performance. One, um, I would say probably the best performance in the movie. My I favorite. Would, I really enjoyed I it. And again, it's like everybody everybody who's showing up here for one of these vignettes, absolutely cooking, doing it. an amazing job. Yep. He, there is an interesting portion of this where he does sort of stake out um, Tilda Swinton's character known as the expert. He stakes her oh, out. Oh, that's and, true. It's interesting. Again, we're sort of un- we're seeing and hearing things, and we're trying to build a profile of who this person is. But in a certain way, he's a step ahead of us, but not in a great way. He's a step ahead of us in the breakdown of his adherence to his own rules, because this is a scene, as you said, he just kind of walks in, and they have 
an interaction or he gets monologued at, but you get the sense that something emotionally is breaking a little bit here. He's much more careless. He seems to be a little resentful of this, this other, the expert of this other assassin. And I don't think it's necessarily resentment born out of the, the revenge plot. It's not a resentment born out of the why it's a resentment born out of this idea that this is someone who is just like him, but lives a, comparatively normal comfortable life she's she's got a bottle of scotch at this fancy upscale restaurant you know she's living in the suburbs is i think i think when he starts staking her out there's like a masseuse that kind of a masseur that comes to her home like she is not living this uh difficult ascetic forced um sort of forced exile that he is living in she does not have to forbid empathy she is not worried about weakness she's living life to a certain degree to the fullest, whether that's to cope with, with, you know, what she's done and who she is. We're not really told and it doesn't matter, but he's like a little upset about this. He's not, he's a little yeah. unhappy that, that somebody. He's a little bit, he's a little bit salty that she has yeah. scotch flights and a restaurant and lives in a suburb. Like he's commenting on it. You're right. He does stalk her for a little bit and he's kind of having these little lines that suggest that he's going like, huh, you do that. Huh. You get to do that. Mm-hmm. You get to lead a life, whereas I am this weird uh, living out of a suitcase boy. And where his, it where is his interesting one attempt to watch at living a life turned yeah. tragic. Yes. It's an interesting question of whether or not the luxuries... I guess the luxuries and like the exceptions to his like you know asceticism that she she engages in... They're not really, I don't think, what takes her down. No, certainly not. Like, no. he, he gets revealed just as easily. Like, he had a house, and he got taken down, and she just happened to take the wrong job. Yeah. She would have kept being able to live this double life just fine if she hadn't been assigned Michael Fassbender as a, or the killer. It really is hard not to just call it Michael Fassbender. She, um, she basically accepts her fate, much like everyone else does, except for the 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 brute, the brute. Uh, right when he shows up. But she has this like waxing lyrical quality about it. She's like very, yeah. very verbose and very yes. almost melancholic and like, well, it's, these are my final moments. Like there's very, it was she's, happen. she's really, really up in her performance about like, ah, it's time to die. You know, it's very, it's a very funny performance. It's a really funny performance. And given that she does at the very end attempt to zag and get him, you do wonder if it's almost like a tactic of like, there's no way this guy's going to kill me. Oh, he's going to kill me. Fuck, I need to come to terms with the fact that I'm going to die. Yeah. If he thinks I've accepted I'm going to die, maybe he'll make a mistake. Like, yes. it is still two hitmen having this little interaction. Uh, and you wonder the entire time, you know, is, is she going to try and pull a knife on him? Is she going to try and get him? She, she seems, she yeah, she seems to be the only person who is uh, not not taking him seriously, but feels like she's a match for him to a certain degree. And yeah. I do love, so yeah, what happens is, you know, they, you know, they're sitting in this restaurant. She brings her bottle of scotch and a flight of scotch out. And eventually is kind of like, well, you know, should, should we do this thing? And as they're leaving, yeah. she, she almost does like this incredible little prat ball <laughs> on the ice, asks for his hand to help him her up. And he immediately just like pops her right in the dome because he knows exactly what's it, it, happening. And that it, beautiful it reveal that. of, I think it cuts to, he shoots her, it cuts back to him and then cuts back to her dead body where you see the knife having been revealed by her falling over. Like, yeah. Yeah, it adds just every little detail adds a little bit of a layer to a character that you can't know for sure, but the the way it's you can only go by what you're seeing, which I like about this. Mm-hmm. 
So he's worked his way up the chain. Yeah. He's killed the the taxi driver, his handler, her uh, secretary, his secretary. He's killed the brute. He killed the high-end fancy assassin. And that brings him all the way to Chicago, the client. The person who theoretically was the one who said, kill that hitman that failed to kill my target. Mm-hmm. Um, we get, again, just a very funny uh, capitalism eating itself thing where he you know, goes on the internet and purchases the the card cloning thing off of Amazon and waits for it to get shipped to him. Yeah, he gets a flipper zero. He, d- he doesn't totally, actually, but like, you might as well. But he basically does. And he goes through the process of finding the like, oh, he spots the name of the luxury gym and he goes in and he breaks into the locker and he gets the car. Just again, the minutia in the process yeah. of breaking into the penthouse apartment of a billionaire. The free membership at the... I forget what the name of it is, but it's clearly like Bell Qu- Equinox, and it has like a funny name that I'm sure Fincher like really chuckled about in the script. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, a really it's, silly name. He's doing this sort of stocking and stakeout, but here, I don't know if it's because you know he's at the top level, but you sort of actually see him reverting back to top form. There's no more of the emotionality yep. we saw in the last scene. There's no more of the sort of. Um, you know, the physicality that we see with the brute, like all these little weaknesses and all these little subversions that now you're watching for these little signs of weakness. Now he's kind of like back to back to being on his game, which is really funny because in the beginning of the sequence, he essentially tells you that he is, this is the one person he's not going to kill. Yes. There's a line at the beginning of this sequence that you don't know it's teeing this idea up, but it's like one of the harshest one of the the darkest things in a very, very dark movie, which is that the amount that law enforcement gives a shit, I'm paraphrasing, but the amount that law enforcement cares is directly correlated to the net worth of the victim, um, which brings us to this this sort of final target, Claiborne, the billionaire that hired um, hired him in the first place. And it's it's again, it's a very, very funny scene. Where he he ends up in this in this penthouse and he even kind of calls the guy out on it and the guy doesn't really know why he's there mm-hmm. he doesn't know why a man with a silenced pistol is suddenly in his living room he's on he's on and the phone takes, he's talking to someone he does phone, sort of like yeah. he sees Fassbender at the end of the hallway holding a pistol yeah. and he kind of like uh, let me call you back yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's he's just a very, he's confused very by this presence, presence which is really funny yes it takes him a while and it it's either a really good lie. Or he just genuinely didn't put it together. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh my God, that hit I put out. Okay, Christ. Um, and the scene is presented as this, like, it's not, Michael Fassbender establishes pretty early on, he's not really there to kill him. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm here to find out if we have a problem. Yeah. I think I think what he actually, I think, yeah, I think what he actually says is, I wanted to show you how easy it is for someone to get yeah. to you. Yes. Yeah, which, which is a really... It, yeah. It's like one of the few things he says in the movie that is actually kind of cool. Yeah. It's, it's one of the, yeah, the few is. like non undercut, non sort of like double entendre lines. That that's, yeah, he's, he's right. It's true. Yeah, it is. It is. And it, it, it is the closest to, it's maybe the coolest he seems in the entire movie because for like all the other kills, like we've been saying happen so abruptly and without fanfare that he never really has like a hitman badass moment. Mm-hmm. There's something very badass about showing up in someone's penthouse and just being like, I'm here to show you how easily I can come back and do this. And the next time it will be a radioactive isotope on the lip of your coffee mug and your face will melt off. It's like, oh. Yeah, yeah. God damn, Michael. Like that's rough. 
Um, and he decides not to kill him. Yeah. He decides to let let the billionaire go. And it is... It's not worth the trouble. It's not worth it. And it is so interesting that, yeah, after... Again, we're, we're being subverted in all these fun little... It's it's almost like... It's almost like you're... you're you're being undercut and subverted and, and the air is being taken out sometimes by like an act of violence or sometimes by the lack thereof, because this is, this is the thing this has been building up to, even though he's already essentially five to 10 minutes ago told you this isn't going to happen in, in your mind yeah. because of everything you've seen, especially because of the sort of personal nature of the previous scene or the, the relatively personal nature of the previous scene, you're like, Oh, he's going to snap and kill this guy. Like this is, this is going to yes. be his undoing. And in the one area where you think, surely this is the one person that is going to get it, that's where he follows the plan. He has the restraint. He he finally is able to um, to kind of live up to the creed he's been telling you about. And it's an interesting choice. Does that make him smart? Does it make him a coward? Like what, it's so hard to, I don't know, there's so many readings of this movie, which is kind of what I love about it. Yeah, we talked about this earlier, but the movie has these bookending monologues where he says, at the start, from the beginning of history, the few have always been exploited by the many. Mm -hmm. This is the cornerstone of civilization, the blood and mortar that binds all the bricks. Whatever it takes, make sure you're one of the few and not one of the many. The movie then follows him killing what we could call many people. Everybody in this sequence has to die until he reaches the few. The person who is so powerful that, well, you're not part of the many. Uh, I can't actually kill you. I have to just let you be and go back to my life. And as such, the film is bookended with a monologue where he reflects on what it means to be the few and the many. And the film ends with the line, maybe you're just like me, one of the many. And then he winces, and then there's a needle drop, and then the movie is done. Oh, the the choice to do the wince... (sighs) And the choice to hold and cut right after, just, it's like, ah. the details are so beautiful. I think that there's, yeah, going back to how much of this is Fincher commenting on himself, how much of this is Fincher commenting on society, it is poignant and interesting and funny and above all else, dark, that, you know, essentially the thesis is, well, death comes for us all, but not in the same way. And, and you know, even this, like, this... Uh, pretty good but not elite as elite as he like to think assassin there there are people that even he knows he cannot kill uh not from so a practical sense but from a sense yes. of of just even for him this is not how the world works and it's just yeah. i don't know it's it's it is it, it that's the one part where i think it's hard not to see a lot of this as some commentary on fight club and its legacy and yeah. and a continuation and a follow-up not of the way that movie was read, but what I think that movie, at least from Fincher's perspective, was trying to say about certain things, about how how the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> yeah, it's when a movie like this starts with that monologue about the few and the many, it's setting up this idea of here is a story about an apex predator, one of the few, the person you don't want to ever meet. It's best if our paths don't cross. Mm-hmm. There's like a little beat in the dialogue about that. Yeah, he literally says it, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's like, it's a very interesting film that says, do you want to know who's a bigger apex predator than a hitman who is able to hit kill pretty much everyone he goes after in this movie except for that first person? A really, really rich guy. Yeah, a venture capitalist. Venture capitalist. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, that, that is the real apex predator. That's the real killer you want to watch out for because that guy, he'll get away with it. 
Yeah, it's the it's the sort of like if it was a sports metaphor, it's you know, you might be a you might be the star center, but you know the guy who signs your checks is still in charge. Yes. Yeah, the star quarterback uh, yeah. owns the team. Yeah, it's uh, it's very funny. It's a very funny way to end a movie like this, uh, and it feels in keeping with the like the nihilism and the pessimism that this character has been espousing through the entire film. Like it. It's all on theme, baby. Yeah. Because uh, that's Fincher. Um, you know, yeah, I think, I mean, that's the movie. That's the plot. That's the I film. loved it. I, I, I think a question that I have for you, and I'll answer, I'll answer this question as I ask it, sure. is what kind of movie do you think this is? Because I, to me, I, it's very clearly a comedy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's... It's a, I would say it's a genre dark comedy. Like it's very genre-y and I don't think we can, it is excited about the fact that it's a hitman movie. Yes. It's just that the things that he think are interesting about being a hitman is the mechanics and the minutia of it. A different director would have made a different movie about being a hitman. This was David Fincher's. To your point, if you made it, it's about you. So I think it is, it's like a celebration of the assassin hitman genre and it's a really, really funny one. Like, yeah. it's a really, really funny ode to that genre. Yeah, I think I think this movie made by just about anybody else, other than maybe some of the filmmakers that I was kind of mentioning, like yeah, Soderbergh, Soderberg, Corbin, who yeah. made movies that this is in conversation with. Those would have been very different, yeah. but there's there's not a lot of people that, that would have made this nearly as good as it is. Like, this is... No. This this is a case, and I think Fincher does this a lot. This is a case of not necessarily elevating you know, what have what would have otherwise been bad or middling. It's taking something that was already good and elevating it to like great. It's. I think it would have been middling. I, I think so. I, again, think so. coming from that graphic novel, I'm like, this could have sucked. Yeah. Like this could have been really, really rotten. Um, but he just scraped out ninety five percent of it. And he took what was left and he just like inserted all of that like, well, the hitman would probably know how to use Amazon and the hitman would probably know that WeWorks are all abandoned and the hitman would probably, he, he just built all of that fincheriness back into the, back into the teeny little bit of the source material that he left behind. Yeah. You brought up Soderbergh. It reminds me of Ocean's Eleven. Oh, sure. It's interesting that okay. Soderbergh also made a hitman movie, but like Ocean's Eleven is a genre film. It is a heist movie, but it is totally carried on the specific sensibility of the director, the things he finds entertaining and funny and worthwhile in a movie. like, And it just hones in on those little teeny elements of the genre, mm -hmm. and in doing so, redefines it. And in Ocean's it, it Eleven and the subsequent Ocean's movies, what Soderbergh yeah. is super fascinated by is the process of it. He yes. And the same in Logan Lucky, same in a number of other yeah, movies yeah, yeah, that he's yeah. made. He's just so into the, like, how would this work? And how would not just yes. how would this work from a practical perspective? How would this work with the characters that we have? How does each of how do we kind of have these personality types around this type of job? Um, Soderbergh making this movie would have been wild. The same way that like yeah, Fincher making Haywire would have been really nuts. <laughs> the um, the book. So there's a there's like a thing about uh, Fincher's Girl with a Dragon Tattoo was that it was his attempt at creating an adult franchise. Like he wanted to create a franchise of movies that were targeted at like mature adults. 
obviously, if you've seen that movie. The book that this is based on, the first three books of this like nine book compendium are this movie. Mm-hmm. But then it keeps going on. And there's a whole story about the killer who and his new client after, you know, Hodges is like a drug cartel guy. And once that resolves, there's then another thing. There's a little part of me that's like, I wouldn't really be mad if like in four movies we come back to this combination of people. Yes. And it's about the same blank slate character, but now he's working for a cartel. And we get another plot about that. Yeah. And it explores some new set of themes, but it's the same Fassbender Fincher combo. I would love I I think you could do a killer too and have a very good time with it. This yeah, this presents both from a story and character perspective a really interesting blank slate for him to build around in his themes. Um and yeah, like I'm glad you brought up Girl with the Dragon Tattoo where it's like the only person that should ever consider making another killer movie is Fincher. As we saw with those, okay. they did not want him <laughs> to make the other ones. And the other ones are dog shit. They're bad. Yeah. Yeah. They are Turns not out those were movies. hard to adapt. Yeah. Like it's yep. it's I understand why they didn't want him to come back and make another one because like he literally needs all the money in the world to to make his yes. movies and he deserves it. But like the the ones Give they made him. afterwards with other people were just they should have been non-starters. Like that's that's the kind of thing where it's like you know you should have shelved this for the tax write-off if you weren't having the <laughs> You should have Coyote versus Acme or whatever that that one is. Bat, you should get you should have Batgirled it. It should have Batgirled it. Yeah. 2023's action thriller The Killer by David Fincher. Is that it? That's it. He's a killer. He's a killer everybody. Yeah, he's a killer. Uh, it's, it's a great time. Guy, Check it out. Um as a killer. I liked it. Two thumbs up. (laughs) Yeah. We're just stealing two thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, No, I really liked it. Um, Two theremins up. It was a great time. Two guns up. I highly recommend. Two. Shoot shoot at the sky. Two little packing cubes with Glocks in them up. (laughs) Yo, can we just talk about the, the, the tiny little scene under the bridge where he buys a gun from like the video game MPC? Yes. Who's talking at him. It's so video gamey. Yeah. I like your style, Slim. Ah, just like James Bond carried. Man knows his way around a Glock. Like, I could imagine the the audio files getting cut off by the next one as you click through the menu in the video game. Totally, like, totally. Um, it's such a good I loved, I loved that scene as well. I'm really glad you brought it up because I actually forgot about it until yeah. this moment. But I, I, when I was watching it, I laughed. Um, what I like about that scene is yeah. that the, the guy selling the guns really wants to be friends with him. Like he, he wants, so cool. he wants, he, he wants the killer to think he's cool, and he's just you know, he's walking to a killer. Ammo? No, he's like, oh, no ammo. Okay, like he's My just, man. yeah, he's yeah. he's just trying to have a conversation <laughs> with this guy who's not interested. And, and like process, the the scene starts with him just like there's some guys smoking under un, under a stairwell. He's like, move it along, boys, yeah. boys, no, boys, no, no, boys, yeah, boys move it along. I'm, I'm, I'm no, here, yeah, totally. Oh man. Okay, I think that's it. We did it. That was a fun one. Go watch the killer. I, I don't Go know why you're killer. listening to this if you haven't watched it, but if you were waiting for our recommendation, you have our blessing. It's really good. Yeah, you're we're the runtime of the film into this. Go watch The Killer. It's a great time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we'll, I think we'll catch you in the next one. Okay. We did it. Goodbye. Goodbye.